that's a big thing for me is giving them the power to change it. And we forget how powerful a song is to us. And watching youth create and change how we feel means that they can begin to envision the world a different way. To be able to create a beat from scratch is to be able to reimagine their entire world. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher in the Los Angeles area. I'm wrapping up year 17 in the classroom, and this here is all of the above your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. We want to shout out everybody that's joining us, maybe for the first time. Maybe you saw our podcast um, highlighted in the NEA's website about podcasts for justice, and we want to shout out the NEA for for seeing us and, and acknowledging us. We're such a tiny little show, tiny little two-person operation. So we want to, uh, you know, just extend warm hugs and love to everybody who has been with us the whole way and everybody who is who is just now joining the AOTA family. Of course, you can find all of our all of our past episodes on at our website, aotashow.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash all of the above. Jeff, man, it's your favorite time of year. Oh, is it? <laughs> yes. What time Jeff, is, what man, time it's, is it's that? It's testing season, man. Come on now. Oh, you talk about yeah, how much my... you love tests. Come on, man. We're, we're gearing up for oh. AP tests. Certain districts are, are administering the, the SBAC and, uh, and their state performance assessments and all that stuff. I hear there's some SAT stuff going on in different states, man. It's, woo, this is your time of year, man. You being such I... a big fan of the testing industrial complex. You know, man. Well, here's the deal uh, for our for our viewers and listeners out there. I can take I can take the heat from Dr. Rustin here, who <laughs> who likes to paint me into a corner of evil testing industrial complex, man. Even though I spent hours and hours on this show critiquing the testi- testing industrial complex, um, so you know I can take it. I can let it flow like water off a duck's back. Okay. So um, this is not my favorite time of year, (laughs) testing season. Uh, And this year in particular, I've written a manifesto, Manuel, about why uh, the state testing should not happen this spring and the harm that it stands to do. So if you want to read that out there, folks, you can Google the case against testing in the spring of 2021 on Medium by Jeffrey Garrett, okay? Um, so that's all I have to say about that, Manuel. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. That was a, that was a, a solid defense right there. Jeff, you were yes. ready for that. You were ready for that. <laughs> I thought I was throwing you a curveball, man. Well, uh-huh. this is, I mean, it's, you know, the, whatever the, uh, post pandemic, almost end of pandemic economy, whatever is booming and the testing industry certainly is collecting this, um, what feels like stimulus dollars from these tests that should not even be administered during this time of year. So if you're watching this or listening, we know that perhaps you are proctoring some of these tests or gearing your students up for some of these tests. We just want to, you know, acknowledge that uh, we know, like, you know, that um, it's not the best move for right now. It's not the best move, but, you know, depending on your situation, you might not have much of a choice. So, you know, summertime is approaching. We're doing the best we can for our students, extending grace and love and humanity. And Jeff, as far as this episode right here is concerned, what's on today's agenda? 
Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for everybody. And today, uh, I think we're, we're both really excited because we are going to be getting into a topic that I'm not sure we have touched on with a guest at all in the history of the show, right? So we've been at this show for uh, going on four years now. And I think this is the first time we're having a guest on who is an expert and practitioner specifically in the arts. Um, and uh, so we have an incredible guest, Benoit Shepard, coming on, who's an arts educator uh, up in the Sacramento area. He is uh, going to help us explore not only you know what has happened to the arts in schools, right, to arts instruction, arts programming in schools over the last year during the pandemic, but also looking ahead, right? Like um, as we have schools here in California all moving towards or almost all moving towards hybrid instruction or have already started hybrid instruction and then coming out of the pandemic and looking, you know, looking forward, um, what's next for, for arts education, right? I mean, I think all of us have been able to see how challenging in different ways online instruction and, you know, virtual instruction has been. Imagine trying to teach a, teach a kid to, you know, stay on beat with a, <laughs> you know, with a cello uh, through Zoom, right? Um, whole, whole different ballgame there. So, um, yeah, Benoit Shepard is here. Going to be a fascinating conversation about the arts during and after the pandemic. And uh, you definitely don't want to miss it. Man, it sounds like this is about to be a super dope episode. All right, folks, next up is the Do Now, where we take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today we got a roll call. We're going to see who's in the house, take some attendance. Check the roster in, uh, you know, the world of hot headlines in education. Cool. Let's do a roll call. And Jeff, I just need some clarity on the attendance procedures. I mean, it says this kid is supposed to be here in person for this hybrid learning. They didn't come to school today, but they logged in for like a couple minutes. What, what do I do attendance wise, Jeff? Uh, officially, the answer is Mark present. Also, if you attempted contact at home and reached someone at home to discuss why the student was not present in your class today, that also can count as attendance. And if the student was working asynchronously and submitted work today, <laughs> you're going to have to tomorrow retroactively go back and give them credit for attending school today. Uh, oh, <laughs> so. man. It, it, it sounds like you have been part of these discussions, uh, Jeff. That, that, that was a very nice and clear and strong answer. And this uh, <laughs> pandemic pedagogy stuff is uh, complicated, yes. man. Yes. And, and to be clear, I'm going to say, even though attended, like what it means to attend right now is kind of a mess. I also like I'm not actually mad at the policy. Like, I think it's the right sort of, you know, uh, expansive, forgiving policy. It's just it's so hard to wrap your mind around. <laughs> like, what, yeah, man. You know, it's definitely not just like uh, Manuel Rustin present. <laughs> like we we're in a whole new world of what attendance means nowadays. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So let's get into yep. today's do now. The first name on the roster for today, Jeff, is uh, Agnes Varghese. Wow. Um, I mean, great name. Uh, <laughs> props to Agnes. Um, I don't know Agnes Manuel. Should I? 
Well, yeah, you perhaps haven't encountered her yet, Jeff, but she wrote an opinion piece on EdSource that has been making rounds, and she is a fifth-year PhD student at UC Riverside, so shout out to the uh, Highlanders, I think. I think you are right. What is a Highlander? I don't, I don't know that this is some, the show for to discuss lives, that, but I just don't know what a Highlander is. But in any case, someone that's Someone who mascot. lives at Riverside, I think. <laughs> there we have it. Um, yes. So yeah, she's a, a fifth-year PhD candidate who wrote a piece in EdSource, an opinion piece that um, was discussing SEL as a possible approach to addressing mass shootings. And a lot of folks had a lot to say about this piece. So let's let's get into it, Jeff. So um, her op-ed appeared in EdSource. And again, she's a fifth year PhD candidate in developmental psychology at University of California, Riverside. And in her piece, she argues that, quote, we need a national task force to explore the most effective methods of imparting social and emotional learning to address the mental health needs of students as they return to the classroom. And like many, she points out that the uh, toll of the pandemic and distance learning has created a pronounced rise in mental health problems among students. And she writes that students may not be able to handle their mental health challenges and may attempt to cope through acts of violence. We know that gun sales remain strong and mass shootings appear to be back in effect. Varghese points out that before the pandemic, the number of school shootings already was on track to surpass, surpass the number of school shootings in the previous two years. In 2020, there had already been 29 shootings during the first two and a half months as compared to 20 in the year 2019. Studies show that uh, most people with mental illness are, are not violent, so that we need to make that part clear, and she makes it clear in her piece. Most folks with mental illness are not violent. However, she points out that a majority of school shooters report mental health problems such as depression and or suicidal thoughts, and the overwhelming majority of young people report never receiving any treatment for their mental health issues. In response to that challenge, Vardagis writes that we do have a process through which students can learn to effectively confront and resolve emotional, uh, emotional turmoil, and that's social and emotional learning, which helps students in the development of empathy, anger management, impulse control, and problem solving. SEL is known to reduce aggression, suspensions, and suicidal thoughts while boosting emotional regulation and academic outcomes. She ends her piece by writing, quote, the pandemic and accompanying school closures temporarily paused school shootings. Now, as students physically return to school, we must demonstrate that we are not willing to lose any more innocent lives to school shootings. We must seize that opportunity through implementing social and emotional learning programs. Now, Jeff, a lot of folks had a lot to say about this piece. Normally for these do nows, you know, we talk about headlines and news and education, and we don't normally, you know, take this time to respond to commentary or opinion pieces. At least I don't think that's been our history, but this is one where so much discussion has been out there about apparent return to mass shootings and of course the growing discussion around SEL. So what are your thoughts about her her idea that we need to really ramp up the SEL as a response to mass shootings? Yeah, so I I feel strongly about this and I um, I want to make sure my words don't come across as like an, necessarily an attack on her position per se, because look, I love the emphasis on social emotional learning in schools. I love an emphasis on school culture. 
I, I believe in restorative work, you know, of creating community in schools uh, that young people and adults want to belong to and that has a healing and sustaining effect on the lives of all those people who are part of the community. I feel the um, butt coming on. I feel the yes. butt coming. <laughs> but I am tired. I'm so tired, Manuel, of of school being used as the as the sort of primary vehicle of addressing the pathologies of our society. Okay. Um, now there are some pathologies of our society that are rooted in education, like ignorant white supremacy, that actually does need, among many other things, to be educated out of people, right? Like you need to learn real history in order to not fall victim to white supremacist mythology, for example. So that is a that is a solution to a problem that definitely has has a firm place in school. But we do this all the time. We take the problems of capitalism. We take the problems of white supremacy. We take the problems of patriarchy. Um, actually, frankly, we don't really try too hard on the patriarchy front. But we take <laughs> all the problems of the world and we, and we say, like, okay, what we're going to do is, like, more SEL in school, right? School ain't got nothing to do with why we have, you know, more guns than human beings in the United States of America. School has nothing to do with why, you know, we have um, such a, I shouldn't say nothing to do, but has a very limited role in why we are such a violent society, okay? Um, now, should school contribute to this problem? Yes, but the idea that like, oh no, we're seeing mass shootings everywhere. What we need to do is SEL in the schools, to me is like, mm -mm -mm. I'm sorry. We're doing way more intentional work on social emotional learning than we've ever done before in the history of American public school. And yet we have, you know, um, escalating mass shootings around the country and, you know, sadly, what will likely become a return to, you know, to shootings in schools because of other choices we have made about gun, uh, you know, policy, because of choices we have made about economic policy. Now, where, where I do uh, think that school has a role, all, all that said, is that, um, you know, what people are lacking in our society that is pushing people to the fringes, that is taking this toxic masculinity that these primarily young white men who are executing on mass shootings and school shootings, um, what's, what's radicalizing them and pushing them to the margins of this really dangerous, violent, insidious behavior, I think is a lack of community, a lack of connection, a lack of sense of belonging, right? And there is a mental health component to that too, but there's also just like a community, um, you know, personal identity development component. And I do think that school has an important role to play in, in that space and helping young people understand who am I, what community am I a part of? What do I bring? You know, what are my strengths and what do I value about myself? And what, you know, how do I relate to other people? And what can I learn from and value in the other people? And a person who is well balanced on that front is not a person who is going to walk into a space and murder a bunch of people because they're angry or because they haven't had sex or whatever other twisted notion. Um, is driving, you know, that kind of behavior. 
Um, and the reality is we're not seeing, for the most part, people with, you know, the sort of like obvious public mental health issues, right? We're not seeing people who are having delusions and talking to themselves, uh, you know, on the street as mass shooters. We're seeing like disaffected, alienated, angry, frustrated young men, right? Um, and so school has a role in helping to reduce the prevalence of that type of young man because of how, you know, we're socializing them. But, um, but I just get frustrated when we say like, oh, we have this big social problem, schools should fix it. Like, no, man, we need to start the conversation outside of the school and then bring it into school. Yeah, you're right about that. I can't argue that. You are absolutely correct on that. And when I think about her piece here and all due respect to her and her work, I for sure see the importance and value of, of SEL. Absolutely. Um, but I am concerned that aside from the fact that, as you point out, schools are always looked to as like the place where this sort of stuff needs to be fixed. Everything from, you know, lack of nutrition and food. OK, it's school meals and school lunches mm -hmm. and make, make them free for everybody, which they should be. Let me be clear. But like school shouldn't necessarily be the site of, of fixing all the problems in our society, all the problems in our economic structures. Um, but I'm really concerned that SEL is is becoming grouped within that really problematic space of, of grit and growth mindset. I feel like there, as the popularity of SEL has increased and there's tons of money out there now for you know workshops and, and grants and all this stuff around SEL, I am increasingly concerned that too many educators are, are looking at SEL at, in the same way that they looked at grit and, and, and growth mindset, which is to say like, that's what we got to do to help these kids out instead of focusing on the structural problems within the school system and within society. Let's just teach them to better cope with it. And I got to shout out, of course, Dina Simmons, who has been a, a, a very important advocate for proper SEL, which is to say SEL that's not um, meant to just like to use her to use her words, uh, be white supremacy with a hug. She she points out that it's like it's an insult to try to tell a student who's experiencing poverty to like breathe through racism and, and learn to recognize your emotions and regulate them. Like that's an insult because poverty itself and the racist structures themselves are what need to change, not not the student necessarily. Um, but you know all the discussion that we've had over the last several years as SEL has become more and more mainstream in that sense seems to be back to this idea of like, let's fix the kids and all the other big stuff, you know, that's just too big to address or we just don't know how to address it. So let's just help the kids deal with it. And that's just um, uh, really problematic, really problematic. So I, as far as this piece here is concerned, it probably got a lot of attention because like the idea of SEL as like the solution to, to mass shootings is, I mean, alone, like pretty ridiculous. And to be fair, she doesn't just come out and say like SEL, more SEL is going to stop school shooting. She doesn't say that at all. But she is drawing a, a link between the the importance of helping students understand their emotions, be able to label them and, and, and regulate them. And the fact that a lot of school shooters, maybe all school shooters, I don't know, but a lot of them have um, had mental health challenges. Of course, we need more mental health supports for students across the country, especially now during the pandemic. We absolutely need that. I don't know that we need that because of school shootings or because of mass shootings, I should say, generally, because those, I think, are another tier. I'm thinking about my own students during this distance learning experience that we've had and now hybrid learning experience and just how 
stuck in the mud they feel when it comes to really doing anything school related at this point after having endured so many months, so many, well, over a year of a pandemic, over a year of pandemic pedagogy, having endured so much, a lot of students that I interact with just feel, they, they express that they feel like they're just stuck in the mud, like they know they need to do this assignment or watch this video or read this piece, but they just, they just can't get themselves to do it because they just can't like just get themselves to connect with school in the right way right now. Those sorts of challenges need to be addressed. We need a whole lot more support in terms of counseling, in terms of um, therapy options for students who, who really need that. A lot of students, too many students have lost loved ones during this pandemic or have seen loved ones struggle mightily during the pandemic, losing jobs and all of that. We need all of that. I don't know that SEL should be connected to like a, a method for addressing mass shootings. Those mass shootings, as you point out, are the result of a lot of other things, including the fact that there's more guns than people in our country. And I don't want I don't I don't want the lens to shift on like, well, what are schools doing to pre to prevent these mass shootings? Because these mass shootings don't just happen at schools. We know that for a fact. So, yeah, um, I don't I, I just don't I don't think the piece is is leading us in the right direction in that kind of sense. And if anybody's listening to this or watching this and you're new to SEL, of course we talked about it on the show. We had David Adams, a super dope guest, to talk about the the importance and the value of social emotional learning in schools and how to how to go about doing it and, and why it's especially important during the pandemic. All of that is true, but we cannot let ourselves start talking about SEL as like the the way to quote unquote fix kids' problems and issues. Like that's not that's not helpful at all. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent agree there, man. Well, hundred percent and definitely huge shout out to, uh, to our, our, um, you know, uh, uh, inspiration, I guess is the word I'm searching for, uh, in many ways for this type of conversation, Dina Simmons with that phrase, white supremacy with a hug, which I think so perfectly encapsulates, I think a lot of the, um, more problematic efforts around, you know, how we should target our, our resource and time and energy around SEL as a way to just like teach you to cope with all <laughs> with all these root problems that are causing pain and suffering in our society. Like, no, we should work on the root problems and we can also uh, equip students with strong, you know, skill sets around SEL that help them thrive and grow and persevere as as people but that but but not as the solution that allows us to continue to perpetuate you know white supremacy patriarchy and predatory capitalism yeah so that's the first name what's our next name on today's roll call all right man well next up on the roll call is jay Inslee. That name rings a bell, Jeff. I, I remember a time where we had like um, 20,000 candidates for presidents <laughs> in the Democratic Democratic primary. And I believe he was one of them. And Jeff, are you, you always bring politics into this, man. We got to keep politics out of education, Jeff. That's right. Why That's you just always use left wing? Uh, so what are we going to talk about now, Jeff? What's what's this liberal liberal headline that you have for us? Yes, this is liberal left, lefty liberal. Um, no, I mean, people may recognize the name Jay Inslee because he was one of those 20,000 uh, people running for president uh, just, what, a year ago. And uh, he is also still currently the governor of the state of Washington. 
Okay. And uh, shout out to Jay Inslee for his uh, courageous stance on addressing climate change um, as a presidential candidate, which um, seems to fall apart. Hopes, by Jeff. The... Yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. I can't believe oh, people man. are out well, there really saying that still. It, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Go, go. Continue, Jeff. Sorry. Yes. Yes. So. Governor Jay Inslee is on our roll call um, today. He is in the house because we have kind of a fascinating story about education and teacher training coming out of the state of Washington that, that could, in the very near future, cross his desk. So here we go. Let's get into it. Um, this story is by Jared Wenzelberger in The Chronicle. Now, The Chronicle is a newspaper out of Centralia, Washington, I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, Centralia is an area, uh, a town that's like about halfway between Seattle and Portland for those who, um, you know, maybe are not up on their Washington state geography. Um, now, here we go. Washington lawmakers are divided over an education bill that would eliminate a standardized assessment for student teachers that critics say is inequitable and unnecessary. HB 1028 would at least temporarily get rid of a state requirement that teaching candidates pass a standardized assessment called the EdTPA, the Educative Teacher Performance Assessment, before they're able to move into the workforce. Now, 18 different states, including the state of Washington, require that students pass the test before they can start teaching. If Governor Jay Inslee signs it into law, all students who graduate between 2019 and 2022 will be exempt from the EdTPA requirement because of logistical challenges the pandemic has created. Many aspiring teachers in the state weren't able to take or pass the test this past year, largely because a key part of the assessment requires students to film themselves teaching in a physical classroom. Many in the education community have voiced concerns about the, the assessment for years, saying that it's socially, economically, and racially inequitable and has become even more so since the pandemic began. Students have to pay $300 every time they take the test, uh, for example, and that can be a big barrier, especially if a student needs to take it more than once. Students of color, particularly those who aren't native English speakers, also tend to fail the test at higher rates. Now, EdTPA is an assessment that comes out of Stanford University and is administered by Pearson um, and is, of course, normally taken in tandem with a student teaching program. Um, Nathan Estel, the vice president of the educator certification um, at Pearson, said that the test is important because it, quote, provides a uniform and objective measure of an individual's readiness to enter the classroom, end quote and was developed with input from teachers across the country. So, Manuel, uh, Washington State, uh, there's a showdown in the Capitol um, around uh, getting rid, at least for a while, of standardized testing requirement for folks to become teachers there, and equity advocates are happy about this push. Governor Jay Inslee uh, may have to sign this legislation or not. We'll see what happens in the coming weeks. But um, what say you, Dr. Rustin? Yeah, this is super interesting. Now, one thing that I learned in this article, maybe I should have known this all along, but Pearson, that major giant testing company, I didn't know they were London-based, Jeff. I didn't know they were a British company. And that, to me, just adds to the colonial vibe of mm. this you know, <laughs> testing industry that, that we have. Oh. Now, EdTPA, as it's commonly referred to, is um, 
not just, a, you know, for anyone listening or watching who's thinking like this is a standardized test and just like, you know, bubbling questions show that you know some basic stuff before you enter the classroom. It's not that. EdTPA is a massive, massive assessment. There is one teacher candidate in this article who said he spends about three to four hours student teaching during the day, and then another six to seven hours just prepping for the EdTPA because you got to include video and all kinds of stuff. It's a massive endeavor, plus the $300 each time that you take it. This is during a time where there is a looming teacher shortage. There's already, we had a teacher shortage already in certain areas of the country before the pandemic. And that shortage appears to be growing. And just a quick, like, quick Google search while you, you know, talked about that story uh, just now, Jeff, I just, I just typed in teacher shortage. And what came up was Illinois schools dealing with teacher shortage, virtual career fair helps to fill, hopes to fill teacher shortage in Jackson County. Missouri joins national PSA campaign to address teacher shortage. Rural schools have a teacher shortage. Why don't people who live there teach there? This is all just like the first headlines that just popped up, all of these within the last couple hours. So at a time where we are experiencing shortages and we're experiencing what might be a really massive wave of teachers leaving the profession because of the impact of pandemic pedagogy. Now we're like still trying to have incoming candidates jump through all these hoops and spend six to seven hours a day prepping for this assessment that doesn't necessarily really indicate whether or not that person is going to be long-term a, a great educator. And we know this because we see stories every day of trash educators across the nation and they all pass their certification stuff. Like being certified doesn't automatically mean you're going to be a high quality teacher. And I, I'm i all for looking at other methods for determining and measuring um, the readiness of student teachers to enter the profession. I'm all for it. I myself entered the profession well before at TPA, so I can't speak to too much of the particulars of that experience, but I've encountered many student teachers who overwhelmingly the stress of this assessment and the stress of trying to get everything in on time and do everything far outweighed far outweighed their like focus and mindset on actually talking about their experiences and what they were learning on a day-to-day -day basis of the student teaching. It's like, I would love to really reflect on this and have conversations about this, but I got to prep for this at TPA. I got to make sure I got this video. I got to make sure I got this. And yeah, we just don't need that kind of stress, especially when we should be really encouraging and incentivizing folks to enter the teaching profession. We should make it as welcoming as possible and think of creative ways to measure their readiness to enter the classroom on their own um, without having to really rely on this colonial testing structure that we have. And we on this show, Jeff, have had several directors of teacher education as guests. We had Dr. Uh, Hippolito from UCLA. We had Dr. Patina Shea from Laverne. We had uh, Dr. Christina Villarreal from, from Harvard. And in talking about what teacher candidates need to be successful in the classroom and what sorts of changes we need to make to teacher education. Now, I don't know what either of those three feel about EdTPA, that didn't come up in the discussion, but for sure, all three of them talked about the need to decenter whiteness in our teacher preparation, how uh, the need to make sure teacher candidates um, do a lot more personal identity work and do a lot more learning about the communities that they are serving. Like those are the needs there. Um, we don't need to have these what I consider outdated, even though this, is, this isn't an old assessment by any means, but it's still an outdated mindset about um, what teacher certification is supposed to look like. So yeah, we need to move in a, a more humanizing and more helpful direction. And I'm, I'm all for getting rid of this thing. Yeah, so Manuel, I'm gonna take a 
somewhat agreeing but different uh, position on this issue. And, and this might be a place where, where maybe we just disagree. Mm -hmm. So here's my thinking, right? Like this particular assessment, I am not here to fight for it per se, okay? Um, and I think we have, frankly, massive, massive problems with our system for credentialing teachers because we don't fund it well enough um, and we don't pay people well enough on the back end so that they can afford to go to a longer, uh, a longer graduate training program um, in order to get credentials. So we rush everything in these like, you know, alternate certification programs or one year master's programs. And then we just throw people in the deep end of the pool and, and see if they, you know, float. So uh, the system is broken fundamentally, okay? Um, and that said, I'm actually not here for the conversation to, to just say like, well, we should get rid of, you know, any type of assessment or threshold into the profession. I have seen, Manuel, too many cases where we have teachers who I'm like, how did this person make it through their credentialing program and into this position? Now, I'm not saying that's anywhere near, you know, like the majority of teachers or that kind of thing. But every year in our profession, there's, there's a whole swath of like new folks who come into the profession. And I'm like, this person is, doesn't have the skill set nor the mindset and dispositions to be an effective teacher. And especially in the context in which I have worked, which are, you know, serving schools that are almost entirely black and brown, low income urban communities. So we're producing teacher candidates who are just objectively not skilled and qualified to do that work. And like, how does that happen, right? And I'm sure there's variability in any profession, right? I'm sure that like bricklayers, there's like really good bricklayers and so-so bricklayers. But I'm like, are there any bricklayers who like just can't lay bricks? Like, <laughs> maybe that's a thing and I'm just ignorant, right? Are there any welders who just like can't weld, right? Um, or they put up a, you know, a, a beam inside of a building and it just falls over, right? Like. I, I'm not aware of that. Are there any doctors who like just can't diagnose, um, you know, strep throat or whatever it might be? We have some of that in our profession and I think it's a huge issue, man. And we, we like, we need to solve that. I do think there are other ways to solve it than propping up a Pearson test. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not at all wedded to them or that particular mode of assessment. But I think we actually have to think about like, in order to become a teacher, you should have to demonstrate the skill set that it takes to be effective as a teacher. And unfortunately, both because of a long history of having like, you know, virtually no threshold for entry and a more modern history where the threshold has gotten a lot higher, but is maybe using, you know, assessment measures that that produce disparate, you know, racial outcomes that are that are super problematic. We just haven't gotten this issue right. So, I'm, you know, I'm cool with Jay Inslee signing this bill in Washington right now, but I would also hope that what happens is let's think about what we actually need to do with teacher education in order to ensure that there is a high bar for excellence in professional skill when people come into the classroom, man. Like there's there's whole, you know, Matt, well, you and I experienced this. Do we ever learn anything about grading or assessment in our graduate school program? 
Like, I don't, I don't think we did at all. At least, not, at least not that I recall, right? Um, did we really learn about, like, the, the relational aspect of instruction and particularly the, the importance of the relational and, like, culturally responsive aspects of instruction in the context in which we work? I don't really, really depends yeah. on what mentor teacher you had. Luck of the draw, man. Luck of the draw. Right, exactly. And that's my point, right? Like that that's inexcusable. Everyone who becomes a teacher needs to have deep theoretical knowledge and experience, at least in the like hundreds of hours of working on these things um, in their in their practicum in order to become a teacher. And I think until we get to that space, we're gonna just be like quibbling around these stupid Pearson tests that, you know, like, yeah, they're not great, you know? And also that's not really the question in my mind that we need to be to be addressing. The, the racist, uh, you know, outcomes of these tests are a problem. So we, you know, that we need to, we need to work on. But that's my take on it, Manuel. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Those teachers that you pointed out, when you're asking whether or not there are any bricklayers who simply don't know how to lay bricks, I have no idea. Is bricklaying still a profession? Isn't it just in general contracting? Anyways, um, but the teachers that you pointed out, like, do we have teachers that simply can't teach? I mean, we do obviously have teachers who simply can't teach. I would say, like, they they passed all their certification, right? I mean, obviously there are cases, you know, emergency credentials and all that, which I think you pointed out too, but a lot of folks pass all these assessments because you could be really good at an, at an assessment, but not be very good at the actual practice that the assessment is meant to like measure whether or not you're any good at. So yeah, uh, I'm all for rethinking how we do this, especially since we have that shortage. I wanna welcome people into the profession, prepare them well for success in the profession. And I just am of the belief that this sort of standardized assessment isn't helping with that enough to make it worth it. Um, so, so yeah. All right, folks, that about does it for today's Do Now. Um, up next is our seminar with Benoit Shepard. We're going to talk about arts in and after this pandemic, specifically music instruction. It's going to be super dope, super dope. You know, we only bring the super dope guests here uh, to all of the above. If you've appreciated what you've heard so far, consider giving us that thumbs up or that five-star review. All right, up next, seminar. What up, AOTA family? Now, we really appreciate your support. Some of you have reached out, uh, letting us know that you would love to leave a five-star review and do a little write-up, but you can't seem to find it on Apple Podcasts because it's kind of buried there. So just so you know, if you are using Apple Podcasts, if you go to your library, which has all the shows that you follow, if you click on our show and then scroll, you gotta scroll all the way down to the bottom, at least on my phone, on my version, that's that's how you do it. Scroll all the way down to the bottom, then you'll see the reviews there, and uh, you could leave us that five stars. And if you have a moment to write a little, a little write-up, that would be great. These sorts of things help us show up in more educator searches when folks are out there trying to find podcasts to listen to about education and your support goes a long way. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. So excited for today's guest. And actually this guest that we have today, man, me and him go way back to middle school, Samuel Jackman Middle School, South Sacramento represents. We got Benoit Shepard in the building. Ben, welcome to all of the above. Thank you, appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, can't wait to get into this conversation about music and the arts during and after the pandemic. But first, let me let the 
guests know a little bit about who you are and your background and your work in education. So Ben Shepard is the founder and executive director of Bigger Than Us Arts, also known as BTU Arts, which is an arts education nonprofit that brings music, visual, and performing arts directly to students in marginalized communities. A music teacher and band director by trade, Shepard received his bachelor's and master's degrees in music education from the Conservatory of Music at the University of the Pacific and has taught elementary, middle, and high school music for 17 years. In addition to teaching, Mr. Shepard is the Director of Education at the Department of Sound, the former co-director for the Sacramento Youth Band's Jazz Ensemble and Combos. He's an active member of the Element Brass Band and performs with several New Orleans-style brass bands throughout California. Benoit Shepard, pleasure to have you here. I'm going to toss it to Jeff with our first question. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, Benoit Shepard, for joining us today. It is a pleasure to have you here. And um, I know a, a question that is front and center in the mind of a lot of folks is the pandemic and, and teaching of music and the arts, right? And everyone knows that school over the last year has been disrupted in a whole range of ways. But one might argue that it's been even more disruptive to folks like yourself, a middle school uh, you know, arts teacher, uh, who have to teach music or you know, instrumentation to students over Zoom. So how has that gone for you? What's the experience been like? You know, what, what have you learned or struggled with um, you know, trying to adapt uh, music and arts instruction to students in the, in the virtual setting? You know, it's a, <laughs> it's a funny question. You got to start with a, a little laugh to, to help you get through it because uh, it's just been a little bit crazy. When the pandemic started, like the first day of shutdown, there was a middle school band festival that I had prep students for. We were at the high school getting getting ready to walk on stage to perform, and they came out. Everybody has to go home immediately. And, you know, and so that was the beginning of the pandemic where those of us who had spent time, you know, working with youth, engaging them together and prepping them to perform in public settings, which is, you know, what we normally do. And right in the very beginning was a huge, huge upset because they just kind of pulled the rug off from underneath us and none of us were really expecting it. How could we, you know? So, um, so that was the beginning of it was just um, taking the performance aspect out of, you know, band and choir, which is um, a real huge part of it. So, from there, you know, we had to, you know, for those who were old enough, had to get the etch sketch out and just totally start to shake it up and start it all over again because um, such a huge part of the curriculum is that is the um, the group aspect of it, the fact that we have to listen and adjust to other individuals that are around, that we have that our quality of sound is part of something that is larger than ourselves. So, without that, um, it's really kind of put a halt on everything for all of us and so i think for the first few months we were just kind of trying to figure out all right what are we going to do because the world that the kids knew and the world that all the educators were used to prepping for no longer existed so it was um a bit of a shock but um after we just swallowed the pill of hey it's not gonna be what it's ever been for us um we were able to start at least chipping away at, okay, now what's really in our hands? What can we do now? Because um, reality is, it's just, it's just rough. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not the same. It's not what anybody signed up for. 
Um, and it's not an experience that we know anything about. So we can't we can't guide students through the joy of here, learn to play your instrument with somebody else. Um, we're now learning this instrument in your home that's not really set up for you to be able to grow in a productive way. Um, for a lot of ours, we're, we're going from exposure to the beginning of development. So the sounds that a trumpet may make in your household in the very beginning of your learning uh, don't tend to resonate so well with families, um, <laughs> several children and people working in their home. So even all of our grading expectations had to be totally redone so that we weren't setting the students up to just fail over and over again in this new kind of platform. So um, the first the first part is it was it was real rough on that adjustment. <laughs> so um, but again, after we saw that pill, um, we began to with the increase of technologies and other things, we began to see it as a chance to isolate with individual students in a different way. Um, and you know, I'm now I'm more optimistic about that, or I feel better about saying that. Initially, in the beginning, I'm like, well, this is pretty rough, but at least we get to spend a little more individual time with students, you know, just trying to give us something to be positive about, just because um, it was just hard to find positive motivation on all sides of it. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah it's been a nice little roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, as, as an administrator who, you know, I've observed hundreds and hundreds of, of classrooms. And I will say that with almost without fail, uh, the best, most authentic performance assessment you see in schools everywhere is usually in the arts department, like arts and PE, right? Where like, you know, we're learning how to play a trumpet and what you do is practice playing, you know, playing the trumpet, right? It's very authentic and very, um, you know, genuine and tangible for the students. So to see that taken away, I, you know, I can, I, I felt some heartbreak, you know, myself. I can only imagine the, the blow that was to many arts teachers like yourself. But also, if, if I'm correct, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, your district is in the process of um, returning to hybrid schooling right now. Have you, have things started to change um, in terms of how you're able to, to, approach, to approach instruction with the students at this point, or do you see some changes coming on the on the horizon here? Um, well, things are changing. I don't know um, if, in terms of educationally and developmentally speaking, I don't know if it's a positive one yet because we're still in the midst of transition. So my school has started hybrid um, this last week, and so now um, the task of teaching individuals in the room and on camera is something that's happening simultaneously. And so um, in the midst of this new transition, you know, we, you know, everybody's dipping and dodging a little bit to figure out how it's going to work. So um, I'm looking forward to see how things, you know, shift into next year, because by then we may actually see what's really happening. Because um, at this point, it's still, it's still the same type of instruction, but now we have um, back in-person discipline again. So one, one of the many perks of, um, this online thing was that um, discipline is something that's non-existent because um, there's just, you don't have to tell somebody to be quiet. You have to tell them to participate. Okay, please turn your camera on. And to be a middle school teacher, that's a large portion of my job, a part, a part that I enjoy because we get to you know learn and, about the people and build relationships. But um, with 
in our current hybrid, now we have to adjust to that again for about another month and a half. And by the time we start to adjust, then it'll be summer. So it is great to see individuals and feed that part of us. Um, instructionally, though, it's um, giving us something else to transition into that we're just, we're not going to be able to settle into until we're into summer. So um, again, great to see them. <laughs> but uh, now that I see them, I have to be some runners up. Hey, can you put your mask on, please? And yes, your mask goes over your nose when you're in <laughs> with people. So, and but it's it's you know it's middle school, so it's kind of it's where where we are. Man, that's 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 a tall task. Shout out to every educator who's watching this or listening to this, especially those of you who are 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 music and arts educators, because I mean, having to reinvent your practice in the midst of a pandemic. That's been tough on all of us teachers, but especially if your practice involves something as, you know, physical as like a, a instrument and then having the hybrid kids, the kids online and trying to sync it up and do all that. I don't know that there's enough acknowledgement throughout society of just how hard this year has been for our educators. So shout out to you, Ben, and uh, all the other classroom teachers out there, especially those those band teachers who are in the same struggle as you. Now you've been, you've taught at the elementary level middle school level, high school level, and you've been in the game for a long time, I think since like 2003 or 2004. So that was the the height of the No Child Left Behind era, high stakes testing era. I don't know if you recall, but um, arts and music was not a, a big part of those high stakes testing accountability measures back then. So we wanted to ask you, you know, in your time um, in the classroom since then, like how has our delivery of arts education changed over over time? And what lingering equity issues do you see in how we deliver arts education to our students? Um, great, great question. And um, it's amazing how much time has went by when I think back, I'm like, man, how long ago was that? Uh, you owe, man, you owe. Yeah, <laughs> I know, you know, I'm trying to, you know, work it out so, you know, get a better makeup job, make sure I still look like a... <laughs> <laughs> um, no time left behind, you know, was, was a very interesting time because when I came into teaching, uh, every year for the like first six or seven years, they gave me, at the end of the year, they gave me a pink slip and a pink slip was here. Um, sorry, we can't guarantee your job at this very moment, but we expect that in a couple of weeks or a month or so, or before the year comes back, that we're going to bring you back and you're going to have a job again. And, and that was from the very beginning, my first teaching. So at that point for me, what that did for me was have to define my own value in some way <laughs> because for you to, to after after getting a degree and spending years developing the skill because I've known I wanted to teach since middle school that wasn't really a question for me I knew that I was going to be a teacher so to go through that and then get there I'm like hey I got a job like you got the job we'll see what happens in a couple months at the <laughs> years so um with that and because my teaching is connected to a passion of, of music that um, the inspiration and the desire behind it um, don't always come from the paycheck. I'm passionate about music, regardless of where I'm gonna be. I'm gonna teach music to anyone I can find anywhere, whether it's in a classroom or not. So with, with that pink slip pro, um, policy and the no child left behind um, testing initiatives, um, it made me realize early on that um, I have to value myself more than the system itself says it values me. And what that meant for me and the kids was that I have to give you 
all that I can right now uh, because I don't know how long I'm going to be here. So I considered it, I started teaching them in disaster order is what I called it between my elementary and my high school kids. And I'm like, well, I got to get you exposed. You need to sing. You need to write. You need to play. You need to see as much of this as you can because when this year's up, hopefully there's something that resonated with you that'll make you want to keep going whenever an opportunity presents itself, whether it be in school or community, just because we didn't know where those were going to come from. <laughs> and so, and that's from public funding, things that are supposed to be um, obligated by the state to provide. And so that's, it kind of made me be prepared to find a way to continue to provide arts education, um, regardless if they were ready to, to do it or not. So, um, and that, that really helped me because it, um, it, it made me step with a little more energy. It made me see beyond the confinements of a classroom and school funding and school policy in terms of how to engage youth and families with, with the arts because you know they, they need it. The areas that were um, struck by this harder than others are the at-risk communities where they just, if the school didn't provide it, there's no resource for it. And so, because that's, and for me, I always wanted to be in those areas. Uh, we went to Jack Middle School, a, a diverse community that, you know, that had, you know, lots of needs, lots of high risk behavior, a lot of apartment living, a lot of single family households. So it's always been a point of me to kind of stick there where that need is because A, I was never scared of the youth and I, I can connect with their experience and um, make sure that um, I were giving them something um, that they can use to express themselves in a positive way and deal with the, their environment on a day-to-day basis. So um, yeah, that's kind of how it prepped me then. As time has went on, it's great that that policy has shifted and arts are being brought into more conversations um, with the uh, addition of STEAM as opposed to STEM, adding arts in there, as well as we have a lot of good advocates of uh, CMEA and national education of music educators there. They're really trying to do good advocacy work on the legislative level to, to make sure that um, those things are kind of backed and continuously being pushed. So it's, I feel like things are going in a decent direction, but we know educational cycles, about every 10 years or so, we end up taking a step back or forth with the change of, uh, you know, uh, federal educational policies, you know, so. Yeah, if that kind of answers which what your thoughts are kind of on that one. Um, yeah, Ben, I, I so appreciate what you're saying there. And, um, you know, my personal hope is that with all the talk about we need to reimagine school, we need to reimagine, you know, the, the culture and what, what school what the school experience can be for young people that, um, you know, what what doesn't get lost in that equation and the billions of dollars coming down from from the federal government to states and districts is the importance of the arts, right? And the, and the central role that, um, that arts play in helping students find and explore their own identity and finding community and finding passion in, in their experience in school. So, and that we don't see a repeat of the No Child Left Behind era, you know, where it was like double, double blocks of reading and math for, you know, for everyone and pink slips for the art teachers, because still today, all of the elementary schools that I work with, not a single one of them has a full-time arts teacher today, 
right? Uh, which is a direct legacy of of No Child Left Behind, and they, and they're stuck with a, a you know sort of patchwork of um, of community partners who provide programming, but uh, but the investment has not returned in the arts. So very much, uh, you know, your comments resonate with me, and I hope we. I hope we can invest much more more deeply in um, in the arts in our schools, uh, but I, I want to turn a little bit of attention because you're not only um, a middle school music teacher; you also have uh, a, are doing a bunch of work in the community through your nonprofit. So uh, a few years back, you founded Bigger Than Us Arts, whose stated mission is to instill and support positive forms of expression in the community through the promotion of literacy in the arts. Now, early uh, on in our show, I think it was back in our first season, we gave you a shout out in one of our Class Dismissed segments for your um, instrument petting zoo, uh, which is a, a dope concept. Um, so, uh, you know, re-shout out for that. But um, tell us a bit about what, um, what bigger than the arts uh, or bigger than us arts is um, is up to these days? Um, what impact have you ha uh, seen it have on young people? Thank you, appreciate it. Um, you know, it's uh, bigger than arts is, is always growing. Our partnerships are growing. It's great, but when it started, um, really, we're attempting to address equity in terms of exposure. And just so people don't know, an, an instrument petting zoo is just where we take tables of instruments and we allow you community members to actually come up, hold them, play them. We give them very brief instruction so that we can begin to, to close that equity gap of exposure for these places that, that need it. You know, some children have never touched a trunk before. They don't have they, they don't see live music on a regular basis. So just having that exposure things helps us begin to kind of address the equity of issue of arts. And with that in mind, all the programming that we did kind of after that still always kind of connects with culture and equity as well. Um, recently, we got a large CARES grant to provide um, online instruction for various music ensembles. And the one of the big, big perks of that was the, we began teaching production with a program called Soundtrap. And one reason that it really excites me is because um, the equipment and access to programming has been one of the huge um, portions of that equity gap as well. So to have a, a, a production platform that can be accessible to all students is huge because it's a reason why a lot of these neighborhoods, they couldn't afford studio equipment. So with some of the new programming, um, we were able to put the capability for students to create music in their hands, in their homes, wherever they were, and which is huge in my mind. I think that's probably one of the uh, things I'm most proud of is that we were able to find ways to give more students just access to uh, the ability to create, and not just create, but create on their own terms. Um, something else that I'll uh, kind of tangent a little bit, one of the perks of this time and the progression over time is the fact that we are connecting music more with culture and the individual's experience now than we were prior for a few different reasons. One, um, because we can't hear the whole band at one time, it's now one person at a time. How are you doing? How are you playing? What songs are you playing? Do you know any songs that your family would like to listen to? Do you know Happy Birthday? Can you play something for your family that will affect them in any way and 
that's not something we were able to ask before. Now, as I turn that to production, where that is the probably the, the biggest gateway for youth now, because hip hop in production is their primary source of music that they listen to and how most of them would choose to create if they had the option. So it's been amazing this year, kind of watching kids begin to make beats. And I'm talking from fifth grade on to adults, people that don't want to speak, but when you give them some headphones in 20 minutes, they, Here, here's a song, and they'll say, here's a song that I played. And the beat is incredible. Slapper stuff they would get paid for, but we would never offer before because we just, we didn't have the capacity and we didn't have the mindset to be able to say, hey, what are you as the individual doing? What is this doing to your home? So we've been able to embed that a little more with BTU Arts recently through those grants and um, some partners we've been able to provide programming for um, students throughout the city in with those programs. So I think we bought $30,000 worth of equipment, uh, you know, microphones and a few other things that, that we were able to put in students' homes, um, about 300 Soundtrap accounts that were spread out through Sacramento, students in South Sacramento, North Sacramento now have access to stuff that they did not have to pay for, but is adding kind of to their lives. So it's always a goal to hope that we're doing things that are helping sustain arts communities, helping sustain creativity within the household and the community, not just the school, but some of the recent movements that just have allowed us to do that in a way that um, I don't know if I really saw then, but am extremely happy for now as we progress into a new um, age, you know, because that's kind of where we're going now. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of some things I'm excited to do with BTU Art and some of our partnerships. So waiting for things to get live again. But, you know, until the time, uh, we'll, we'll let the youth continue to make a million slappers a day and change how we move a little bit through our uh, regular progression of things. So I love that. That's got to be on the new uh, BTU t-shirt, a, mil a million slappers a day. That's, Woo! I love Thank that. You. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's folks, we're going to link um, BTU Arts, the website, and, and how to support them and all that stuff right under this episode so that you could click over and, and see what they've done and see what they're continuing to do and, and hopefully uh, show your support for, for their work and, and helping get instruments and, and music really out to communities that have been left out and marginalized from arts education, uh, generally speaking. So, so yeah, so in, in addition to that nonprofit work that you do with your own nonprofit that you um, founded and, and teaching music at the middle school level and playing in various bands and having different performances that you do, somehow you also find time to be the director of education for the Department of Sound. Now talk to us about that. What is the Department of Sound and what is uh, some of the work that, that y'all are doing there? Right. So Department of Sound is another arts um, education organization that um, focuses on music production. Um, for them, they our relationship started because they came into the neighborhood where I was teaching and they had access to these production programs. It was their relationship that kind of brought that. They're like, hey, we have this production program. We think some kids would use it. What do you think? And my take was, this is wonderful. Please get us to all the kids I can. Let me be involved. And so from there, they they, what can you do to help us? And so I wrote their curriculum. I, I wrote their curriculum for their 100 and their 200 series. 
Um, we did video instruction. And from there, um, we were able to start to launch this program kind of worldwide through an online platform. So it which was incredible <laughs> to me because I this digital age in teaching um, really expands our reach and our capacity to kind of serve in a way that um, I really wasn't prepared for. But with my work at the Department of Sound, making those curriculums, making those videos, and then once we lost a summer of sound class, there were students all over the world that were taking this class. So they're watching videos of me teach. And then the office hours were uh, like nothing else I've been in before, where I had students from uh, Cuba, I had students from Puerto Rico, from um, Ontario, from New York. And we're just in the room working on music together and in a way that could, couldn't have existed before. So the partnership with the Department of Sound is just, it's, it's great. So with that, after we wrote the curriculum, began to train teachers and put the program in place. So that curriculum has been used for probably about 10,000 students, actually 10,000 next year, it's been about 3,000 students this year, um, kind of spread out throughout, um, throughout the world, <laughs> actually. So, um, and now we're currently working to put it in more elementary schools because again, um, they, the, accessibility of these programs is huge and that came about because of the relationship between department of sound and bigger than us arts so now bigger than us arts we train the teachers department of sound they sell the curriculum and between those things we have a nice toolbox to be able to help any neighborhood any school in some kind of progression forward in the arts for their youth so um and that's a, a fairly new thing in the last couple of years but it's it's exciting the board's really really strong um the executive director's guy named um john hamilton who's a uh, john hamilton hodges the old dj for the kings um so still a lot of really good movers uh, a lot of really good uh um, organizations kind of tied to these partnerships so and now we're i'll be training some people in new york probably in a couple of weeks on the curriculum and as well as providing teachers to some more schools throughout california um yeah, it's so it's a lot of work, but it's it's great work, and um, I feel like we are, you know, really answering the call to try to get to the youth, you know, to let them create, to to have them save us through the stuff that they make, <laughs> because um, I just I can't help that. That's a big thing for me is giving them the power to change it, and we forget how powerful a song is to us, and watching youth create and change how we feel means that they can begin to envision the world a different way. To be able to create a beat from scratch is to be able to reimagine their entire world. And one of the lessons that I'm really liking through this production class is because we take them into podcasting as well, is that we get to journal um, with it as well. To ask them, hey, who do you represent? You represent your family, your school, your community, your culture. Okay, what's important to them? And begin to have that dialogue with them about, hey, what is your voice? What do you care about? Okay, now that you know, how are you going to speak on that? Are you gonna use this music to speak to your culture? Are you gonna use this to represent your school? Um, because all those things are valid and important and you're important and, and, you're, and you're brilliant in your creativity. You just have to have the chance to do that. So uh, between those things, um, I'm thankful for the Department of Sound because it was in writing that curriculum that it allowed me to really 
get to more of a qualitative experience for some of these youth, you know, and have them determine, hey, what's important to me? What's important to my family? Um, and how can I take them with me on that journey? Um, one, as somebody that went through um, the traditional education, went through school bands and all those things, went to college for music, for me, culture was absent for me and my development. I love classical music. I play it all the time, but my parents were supportive and they came to concerts even if they didn't know any of the songs. Um, it wasn't until I was an adult that I found uh, the New Orleans style brass band stuff, the things that really embedded my culture and my music in the same thing. So us being able to, to get to that earlier as kids are really developing is, is a game changer for, for all of us, for all of us, for them to be able to be their true selves, their whole selves in a way that they can't in other subject matters um, from an early, early in their development so they can really, really take the time and shine because they don't need much. They just need us to support them, give them what they need, connect the real and get out of the way. So it's, uh, that may seem a little long-winded, but it's, um, it's, it's where we're at and it's, uh, it's, one of the perks, you know, for me. At this yeah. Point. yeah, it's it's such an important point, Ben, and um, you know, really appreciate you speaking to the sort of power of arts education, and I think that's a great sort of segue into our final question for you today, which is: there's a lot of talk uh, nowadays about learning loss, right, and the need to measure learning loss and mitigate against learning loss, and you know, recover learning loss. And that conversation seems very heavily focused on the sort of, you know, English, math, science, the tested subjects, right, in, in most states. And, um, you know, not to totally dismiss the, the need to think about, um, you know, learning of those subjects for students, but where do you think that arts fits into the conversation about you know, addressing students' learning needs coming out of the, of the pandemic, and what should policymakers be thinking about in order to you know to boost literacy in the arts? Uh, funds, funds. <laughs> like first thing, always for us, like what do they need to think about funds? Because we can't we can't change what happened. We can't change the fact that students that have been developing on a progression for a series of years have had that progression almost halted completely. Um, we can't do anything about that. Um, when we have this conversation about learning loss, um, I'm always somewhat skeptical because it, it kind of takes our conversation away from just how are we moving forward. It keeps us, I, I don't like the connotation of it, but um, because we, we're not addressing the individual because it's still, it's still not, uh, it's how do we fix all the stuff that happened in the past as opposed to how do we just start here where the people really are, reassess where we are, and just step forward. So, and that and that's going to take some funding because reassessment is, is going to take, and I don't mean testing, I just mean actually spending time with people in that way to see where are we now, um, what are our needs, because our needs have shifted. Um, because of that, we need additional resources um, where three trumpets would do before, you know, that's not going to cut it now because people that had their own or had this developed, we now, we now need double the numbers so that we can begin to not just catch up, but move forward um, in, in that progression. So um, I am seeing a lot of organizations that are coming outside of school sector. I, I think the public and private partnerships 
are are huge in kind of pushing that forward um with that because there's not much we can do about that progression there uh but um finding ways to connect um some of the, the cultural experiences in there now i think just should be embedded in it now so i think an ad adaption to the policy and the people that we're including and the decisions going forward that is key to the adjustment to learning loss is making sure we're bringing relevant people and conversations to the table because we have a chance now to really re to re, to re-steer the way this vehicle is moving if we include these people now in this dialogue if we if we're talking about education we're talking about neighborhood association we're talking about the city we're talking about local nonprofits we're talking about resources within these neighborhoods if they're all part of this dialogue now then we can talk about how to really talk about the sustainable arts community as a whole and not just the bandit of what exists in the walls of the school because that's always been the flaw it's always taken a village to raise a community and for arts i think we need to do a better job of piecing that back together so that we can work together it takes all sides for this to happen um in my unique experience of doing too many jobs <laughs> of, of teaching in the school day and doing um, community work in the afternoon um, allow me to kind of see that in a way that you can't unless you're foolish enough to kind of do both of them simultaneously. <laughs> um, but I think um, just bringing key stakeholders to um, the neighborhoods which we're really trying to serve to the table to be part of the dialogue as a preemptive thing as opposed to after the fact when these problems occur. Um, our our normal action is to wait until a tragedy happens and then say, oh, hey, we need help seeing what we can do. And, and it's from the planning, you know, intentional planning to benefit the at-risk youth of our country, not just these cities, is is imperative. So that, and I'm, we're seeing more of that, and I'm hoping that continues um, as we go forth. Um, there have been several funds that have been allocated to various teaching artists throughout the, throughout the country. There's lots of programming that is giving incentive to, for that relationship to, to grow between public and private organizations. So I'm hoping that continues. Um, but we'll see um, where that goes. But again, some of the work that's happening is really, really good. Um, I just hope when we get out of disaster or you know, out of the disaster mind state that some of the practices that were being put into place and conversations that are being put there um, can be lasting and continue to be something that's um, not prescribed to a community, but by a community, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There you have it, folks. South Sacramento's finest, Benoit Shepard. Check out BTU Arts. Check out Department of Sound. All the links are right here underneath this episode. Uh, ben, thank you so much for taking time out on your, your busy band Saturdays. I think everybody who knows anything about high school and middle school music knows Saturdays are, are not days off. So uh, shout out to you for taking time out to be here on All of the Above. Thank you. I appreciate what you guys do. You guys do something very, very important for us. And your representation, your words, um, your diligence in the subject matter, it, it, it means a lot to a lot of us. So um, I, I appreciate being here. You guys keep up what you do. Um, extremely valuable. Thankful for the both of you for all um, for all that you guys do. So pleasure. Yeah. All right, folks. 
Up next is Class Dismissed, where we shout out folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we have come to the end of today's episode. And it's that time when we like to do our class dismissed, which is where we give some shout outs. We give some flowers to folks in education who are just doing good stuff out there. Man, it's time to celebrate some some good news. Manuel, who we got today? Yeah. All right. Today, we actually want to shout out a student, an 11 year old. And, you know, I think before I even get into the details of the story, I think this is yet another like reminder that like just because it was a pandemic doesn't mean young people weren't learning anything. All right. So let's talk about uh, this kid's this kid's story. Um, this is about 11 year old Hart Wilson, a young boy who created a company that he has called Candles from the Heart. And he created it from the ground up after a trip to Howard University at the age of six. When he went to Howard University at the age of six and visited it, he fell in love with it. He fell in love with that school and said, you know what, that's the college I wanna go to. So recently he began raising money to attend Howard University. Even though he's only 11 years old, Howard is still a few years away, but um, he basically took to the internets to learn how to make candles. Him, with support of his mother, executed a plan and began to raise money through online candle sales. He says, quote, I got on the internet and saw that people were making different things to sell and earn money, and I settled on candles. My parents and I watched YouTube videos and started experimenting with making candles, and we figured it all out, and that's when it all started. His business really blew up online, and now uh, Candles from the Heart can be found in local shops in Houston, along with stores in his hometown of Pearland, Texas. Uh, customers have included the NBA's New Orleans Pelicans staff and a writer for ABC's How to Get Away with Murder, along with actresses from um, a show, the show Sisters and Queen Sugar. So his candle business really blowing up. Here's somebody who learned how to make candles and learned how to launch a business online during the pandemic, Jeff, what what happened to learning loss, man? I thought they weren't learning nothing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I wonder what um, interim assessment, BOI assessment next fall is gonna capture this student, okay? Facts, facts. And we, of course, wanna point out that it's really dope that this 11-year-old is excited about college. It's really dope that's it, that this 11-year-old was excited about starting his own business and excited about learning a new skill. All of that is super dope, but of course, of course, our young people shouldn't have to be thinking about how am I gonna afford college. When he visited Howard University, he should have known or the system should have been built to let him know that we got you. If you wanna go to college, you're going to college. We shouldn't have to have young people think about fundraising money for college. Jeff, universities should be free for everybody. Agreed, 100%. Yeah. All right, folks. That about does it for today's All of the Above. We hope you enjoyed what you heard or what you watched. And seriously, folks, that five-star review goes a long way. And as always, you can catch all of our episodes at aotashow.com. Rate us, review us, thumbs up, all that great stuff. We love y'all. Can't wait to see y'all next episode. Until then, see you later.